You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Recently, I have begun the practice of yoga, all right? Particularly hot yoga. I'm at the beginning of my yoga journey, and I'm going to be honest, I'm a beginner yogi, all right? But I really like it. I'm going to go ahead and commend it to you. You should try out some yoga. Now, the yoga that I practice most often is called Bikram yoga. It's a specific sequence of 26 postures that you put your body in, in many contorted ways, and you perform them twice. So I also practice yoga at a hot studio, which means that after we're done with those 26 postures, doing them twice, the temperature eventually climbs to around 110 degrees in the room, 50% humidity. I have never sweat so much in my life. Now, in this sequence, this flow, this practice of yoga, there is a foundational posture that comes back over and over and over again. It's called savasana. All right, some of y'all fundamentalists are cringing a little bit, but that's all right. All truth is God's truth. Amen. Savasana is a Sanskrit word that combines Sanskrit sava and asana. So sava means corpse and asana means posture. To translate it literally, corpse pose. You have to make your body look like a dead body. You have to relax every single muscle in your body intentionally. Look at your neighbor and say savasana. It's not every day you get to learn some Sanskrit in the service, all right? Today we're going to learn Sanskrit, Latin, and Hebrew, all right? So you get extra credit for this sermon. Savasana is foundational to the practice of yoga because it's essential to make it through the whole series of postures. Because in Savasana, you you intentionally still your body and calm your heart rate from what's come before you and draw strength for the work that you have in front of you. Nikki Costello, a a yoga instructor in New York City, says this, Although it looks easy, easy, savasana, corpse pose, has been called the most difficult of all the postures. Because many yoga students can happily balance, bend, twist, and, and all of that through the rest of class, but they struggle with just lying on the floor. Come on, somebody. The reason is that the art of relaxation is harder than it looks. It doesn't happen on demand. You can't just say, okay, I am going to relax now. That's why savasana is such a gift. The pose, listen, sets up the conditions that allow you to gradually enter into a rested state. When you first start practicing course pose, she said, it can be a struggle to relax. You just lay there feeling tense and staring at the ceiling. She says, we're used to engaging our muscles and our brains to achieve our goals. Yet in savasana, we become equally skilled at letting all that activity go in order that the pose's beneficial effects might rise. It's hard to let go of the idea that everything important happens when you are moving and taking action. Mm. Savasana is a necessary ceasing of activity because you're not going to make it through the whole yoga flow unless you learn to take a rest, setting it apart to calm and refresh your strength. The creator God has a set of postures for his people, all right, to practice. There's the posture of loving service, deeds of mercy and justice, our work and labor in the world, fasting, feasting, hospitality, generosity, being on mission with Jesus. But there is one posture, one practice that is meant to cycle back week 
after week. Work, then stop. Work, then stop. In this practice, the people of God are to learn to cease from their work and intentionally enter into a posture of rest, of worship, of mercy, and delight. And if you don't learn to cultivate this posture, you will begin to spiritually and physically disintegrate. You can't make it through the rest of, this, of the postures and this, unless you incorporate this posture. And this practice is called Sabbath. It is called, in Hebrew, Shabbat. Look at your neighbor say Shabbat. Shabbat. All right. Shabbat is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. But you know what? Let's be real. It's an interesting commandment for us. Pastor Russ told me at the beginning of this series, I'm giving you the fourth commandment. Because the fourth commandment is the easiest of all the commandments. I'm being nice to you. It'll be very easy because who doesn't like rest? Of course. But after spending some time with it this time, I'm not so sure about that. Sabbath has begun to shake me up, hit me upside the head, and I think it's going to shake you up. And I think it's going to hit you upside the head in the best way possible. Here's why. The other commandments, you know, have no other God before me. Don't make a graven image. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. They can be difficult to apply, yes, but we generally hold them to be applicable and plausible, right? I shouldn't worship other gods. I shouldn't make idols of God and bow down to it and pray. I shouldn't lie to people, steal from people. I should honor those over me, not covet. But keep the Sabbath day holy? Hmm, do I even know what that means? It means something very significant and evidently extremely important to God. As many have pointed out, uh, the fourth commandment comprises 30% of the Ten Commandments. If you were to put the Ten Commandments in a pie chart, 30% would be taken up by this one. One out of ten comprises 30%. It's the only spiritual disciplines in the Ten Commandments. There is no remember to pray. <laughs> it's the only commandment that is given a full rationale, a history, an explanation. It is a commandment that is grounded as anciently as you could possibly ground anything. The first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So creator God establishes a pattern for himself. Work six, rest one. What did he do on day six? He made men and women in his image. And so intricately woven into the fabric of the created universe and into the created image of God that you and I contain is Shabbat. Sabbath is foundational to the image of God and to the created universe. And in the Old Testament, Sabbath pertains to all aspects of life. Yes, personal life and personal work rhythms, but also animals, land, even financial debt is connected to this pattern of don't work something to the bone. You don't, you're not allowed to work seven days. You're not to, allowed to extract every single thing possible. Sabbath, Shabbat, was utterly unique in the ancient Near Eastern world. There is no, it is unknown outside of the people of Israel. There are no other people group that practice such thing as a Sabbath. Many today have sought to quote, spiritualize the Sabbath. 
Any, first of all, anytime that someone says they're going to spiritualize something, please be skeptical right off the bat. All right? Don't be more spiritual than God. All right, so many have thought, sought to spiritualize the Sabbath by saying the Sabbath is about, you know, resting. And it's generally a good idea to rest, especially for us as Christians, because Jesus has done the work of salvation on our behalf. Hallelujah. Uh, but would, would we do that with the other commandments? Would we say, you know, it's, it's generally a good idea not to steal. But, you know, if you steal, if you steal a little bit, it's all right. Right? We don't apply the same framework to the Sabbath because Sabbath is not just about, hey, if you feel like it, it's a good idea to rest. Sabbath is instead from the word in Hebrew, literally to be translated, stop, cease. And the Sabbath literally translates into the day that stops. Sabbath was a day of stopping work except for the work of worship, of mercy, and the intentional joyous rest. Sabbath is not, hey friend, I got a guest room if you'd like to rest for the night. Instead, Sabbath is, child, listen here, it's time for you to go to sleep. You must rest. (laughs) But I think, like our text in Nehemiah today, we, like Israel in Nehemiah's day, have largely forgotten Sabbath as a foundational practice. This gradual fading away has really happened only over the last 60 or 70 years. Yes, it's that recent. You can go back and study the history. We are often wanting to find spiritual and emotional reasons for our restlessness that we experience today. Our feeling of anxiety, our feeling of never stopping. But I want to propose to you that the reasons are far more structural and practical in nature. That's why I say the Sabbath has shaken me up this week. In our tradition of Christianity, we have this phrase that comes out of the Reformed tradition, and it's called Semper Reformata. Look at your neighbor and say, Semper Reformata. (laughs) All right. In Latin, that means always reforming, but let's translate it for today. Semper Reformata means always being willing to let the Word of God change your course of life. And I believe it may be time for a Semper Reformata moment with the Fourth Commandment. Because this forgetfulness of the Sabbath, it's really been to our own peril. Because to reject something at the heart of the creator God is to resist the grain of the universe. And as C.S. Lewis said, when you resist the grain of the universe, you should expect to get splinters. So I want to explore this topic of Sabbath today with three Ps, all right? Y'all know I like three Ps if I can. Profaning the Sabbath, protecting the Sabbath, and praising the Lord of the Sabbath. First, profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah is a book that we have never been in as a church. This is the first time in Grace Mosaic's history that it has appeared in the pulpit. (laughs) It's an interesting moment in biblical literature, and it doesn't get a lot of airtime, but it's a historical moment when Israel has come out of the exile of the nation of Babylon, right? They've come back to the land of Israel. The Lord has returned them there to Jerusalem. It is a time of rediscovering the Lord. It is a time of re-remembering the word of God, and reviving the worship and practice of God's people. Nehemiah is a book that explores some of the practicalities of that, mainly the need to build a a gate around Jerusalem again to protect it, but also the details of worship and life as the book of Ezra, its counterpart, shares a a close relationship with. And Nehemiah is kind of like a governor of the people. He's he's a, a power broker, you could say. And we are right here at the end of Nehemiah. 
And he states that he's been observing God's people. He's been watching them. He's just been watching, paying attention to their lives. We need people who watch and pay attention to our rhythms and patterns of life and can speak into them. And that's what Nehemiah does for Israel. He's been watching that normal life is happening on Shabbat. In fact, it's indiscernible, even in Jerusalem, that there is such a thing as Sabbath. The marketplaces are open, 7-Eleven, Walmart, Best Buy, Giant. Everyone's got the light on. The foreign traders from Tyre, a nation on the coast, are coming and setting up uh, the fried fish stands on the side of the road, and and they're finding willing customers taking the bait. Not uh, that Israel expected people from Tyre to necessarily follow the Sabbath, but the fact that other nations are coming and finding willing customers in Israel on the Sabbath day is a sign of Israel's state. Why are they working? I don't know. You fill in the blank. Maybe they need, quote unquote, the money. In spite of what they said they believe, maybe they don't think that God can provide for them unless they work that extra day. Maybe they want to maximize productivity and profit. Maybe uh, the charcoal fish stand is out there buying fish because they will have willing customers and they need supplies and they need to earn that extra day's profit. It's better for the bottom line, they think. Maybe they couldn't make it to the market on day six, so they just got to go to the market on day seven. Maybe they're so in the rhythm of the grind of work and life that they have even forgotten there's another way of being. This is just the way things are. And so Nehemiah confronts them. He says, I confronted the nobles of Judah. I want you to pay attention there to the text. Nehemiah doesn't just confront the people. He confronts the people in power. The power brokers who are the people that are making structural decisions about how society will look. And he says to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not God bring all this disaster on you? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel. He's hearkening back to Jeremiah chapter 17, Amos chapter 8, when the prophets were confronting this very thing before the exile of Israel. And and Jeremiah warned, if you bring loads in on the Sabbath, if you treat the Sabbath as just another day of work, then God will bring disaster upon this place. That's what Nehemiah is hearkening back to. So how does this work out in our days? I'm going to move forward in the sermon with the assumption that Sabbath is grounded in creation. It is spoken strongly of here in the moral law of the Old Testament and that the New Testament does nothing to abolish the Sabbath. And and it still applies to us in the same kind of moral guidance and wisdom as do not steal and do not lie. That Jesus doesn't do away with the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, as uh, Dr. Ince referenced earlier, says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Early Christians made a shift, and it's a shift I don't have time to fully discuss. But suffice it to say, for early Christians, the Sabbath gradually shifted in the calendar week from the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day, to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. And that's because that's the day that Jesus got up. That's because that's the day that Jesus finished his work of salvation. But as the actual day of the week shifted, the fundamental practice of Sabbath did not change. Work six, rest one. So until very recent time, 
much of the Western world practiced a Saturday sundown to Sunday sundown practice of Sabbath. As John Mark Comer in his great book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I commend to you, he says, it wasn't until the 1960s that the 7-Eleven Corporation, we have one right here at 14th and Rhode Island, all right, entered onto the scene of the marketplace and shook up that rhythm. That's the, where the word 7-Eleven comes from, seven days a week, 11 hours a day, all right? And eventually, other corporations and restaurants and everyone followed suits. And I want to just say, Christians in the West largely have let ourselves be dictated by the societal and cultural forces around us. And we have been caught in that same stream to maximize all time, to never be at rest. Our own confessional documents of our tradition say the Sabbath is a Lord's day to be sanctified by a holy resting from all worldly employments. On the other days, those are lawful. But on this day, we make it our delight to spend the whole time, except those things that need to be done by necessity or mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship, right? So how are we profaning the Sabbath? Well, I think the same grid of Nehemiah still applies to us. Could people tell by observing our lives that one day of our lives as a people is a Sabbath? Or are our days basically indistinguishable? Perhaps apart from showing up from church for a couple of hours. <laughs> In some senses, only you can know exactly what work is for you. But I can tell you the wisdom from our great tradition, both Jewish and Christian. Find the ordinary work in your life, your salary or your shift work, your paying of bills, your painting of rooms, your repairing of this or that, even your food prep maybe, your work of cooking. Those things that are tedious, ordinary work for you, put them to rest. Make them cease when at all possible. Sabbath, like Savasana, is a letting go of labor and a clinging intentionally to the rest of worship and delight and rest. That's why for a long time the people of God practiced that there shouldn't be any commerce on Sunday, which was to fight against the cultural forces of materialism, accumulation, and productivity. To say that life is not commerce. Life will keep going if stores are closed or if I don't shop at them. The fact is that many of our lives, let's be real people, many of our lives are running at the same pace as those who do not hold to our faith. Our faith in a God of Shabbat. Our faith in a Savior of rest. I have often felt convicted and full of tension and lament that my life, my body, and my soul were so restless and distracted and harried that I could not give neighbors or family the attention of thoughtful conversation, of a posture of unhurried, unhurriedness in life, because I didn't have the space for it. I didn't have the capacity for it. I didn't have the rest for it. Do you feel that way ever? You ever feel that sense? And I felt funny about how I'm approaching this topic. How far should I go as a pastor preaching to you today? But then I realized I can do you no harm in your life by telling you about Shabbat. I can only bless you to bring you back into the grain of the universe. So I hold before you and before me the command and the invitation of a God of rest, to rest in God. But if you want to move from profaning the Sabbath to practicing the Sabbath and praising it, then there's something in the middle. And that's called protecting the Sabbath. 
all right, protecting the Sabbath. I've already noted that Nehemiah, he didn't confront the people, the congregation. He didn't preach a sermon to them. Instead, he confronted those who had power over other people's rhythms of life. This is addressed in the fourth commandment too. The fourth commandment says your son, your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. And when you hear those words, think your employees, the people who are working your land because it's an agrarian society, right? And your livestock and the sojourner within you. Here's what you have to know about Shabbat. Shabbat is a matter of human and ecological justice. You cannot divorce Sabbath and make it just a personal rhythm of life. Sabbath is supposed to be enjoyed by all of God's creation. All the people, rich and poor, immigrant, sojourner, cow, donkey. <laughs> all of them are supposed to enjoy as a just, a matter of justice, the rest of God. So what was Nehemiah's solution to this problem? I want to tell you that it was very practical and structural. He said, as soon as it begins to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut. And I gave orders that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that they might not bring in loads on the Sabbath. And then you remember that confrontation. And he said, if you come back here, I'm going to lay hands on you. All right. <laughs> Nehemiah was not playing. All right. He's putting aggressive boundaries up. All right so that the people can be free to rest. He is ensuring structural realities that will greatly aid in the people's posture, taking the posture of Sabbath faithfully. He knows that you have to protect and prepare for the Sabbath. He, so he creates boundaries for the Sabbath. This is important. For Nehemiah, he doesn't put the onus on, of Sabbath keeping on human will. He doesn't give a sermon to the people and wait till they repent to desire rest and trust the Spirit to do the rest. No, he actually goes to the gate, which represents the point of entry for those forces that violate the Sabbath, and he locks it shut, and he puts up guards in front of it. Because Nehemiah is aware that spiritual, the spiritual change he is looking for in the people cannot happen without the physical practicalities. I cannot think my way into losing weight in life, can I? And getting fit. I can't will my way into that or repent my way into that. Here's what I can do. I can join a gym and I can sign up for class and I can show up. <laughs> so many of us are waiting for restfulness to come to our hearts from out inside of us. But, but I think what we need to do instead is go ahead and put the Sabbath on our calendars and sign up for it. Along with our whole community and commit to practiced structures of rest before waiting to feel the feelings of rest. All right? Because we are embodied physical creatures. That's why it's important not to over-spiritualize things. People of God, hear me. We need to create boundaries for the Sabbath. If you compare your own life and heart to the city of Jerusalem, what are the gates that need to be closed in your life? Who are the vendors knocking on your door that need to be get some hands laid on them if they come back and annoy you? I'm, I'm inviting you to be aggressive with the Sabbath. Cell phones, maybe put them away. Turn off their notifications. Leave them at home. Forget that they exist. What's the worst thing that could happen? Put an away message on your texts and your emails. And people of God, if we need to pull the... I'm a Christian, and I practice something called Sabbath. And my religious convictions stipulate that I not work today. 
let's say from Saturday sundown to Sunday sundown, I think you can often communicate clearly to people your boundaries. And I think that at most times, in most situations, our work establishments will get the message. But this brings up a couple of questions. I know some of y'all are uncomfortable right now. That's all right. What if you have a job in a hospital? You have to perform necessary tasks of deeds of mercy and compassion. All throughout the tradition in the Old and New Testament, works of mercy and necessity absolutely must be done on the Sabbath. That's why Jesus is always going around healing people on the Sabbath, which makes the Pharisees mad. But Jesus basically says, listen, it's always right. It's always a right time to do right. It's always a right time to do justice and mercy. If you have one of those jobs of essential work, then you'll need to contextualize the practice of Sabbath for your life. But try as best you can to work six and rest one. The rhythm is more important than the day itself, though I should emphasize it's ideal to take a Sabbath as a people of God and engage the practice of worship together. This also brings us into the realm of justice and economically diverse cross-cultural application. Because what about people who work two to three jobs just to get by? This is why Sabbath has to be both a communal and church practice, but also a structural and societal practice. People should not have to work seven days a week to eat and survive, period. That's what Creator God said, period. I believe that Sabbath, like marriage, is a creation ordinance, and it should be demanded of workplaces, all right? In an ideal world, those businesses are just not operating one day a week. In a less than ideal world, I get this wisdom from Rich Veladas, who's the uh, pastor of a cross-cultural church in Queens, New York. And it's an economically diverse community in Queens, and one of their main practices is Sabbath. And so he's getting this question a lot. You know, what if I got a job like that? But what he teaches is that the whole community should ensure together that there is economic stability so that people don't have to work seven days a week. You see what I'm saying? So if you're in a position where you were like, I can't take a day off work, then let the community know so that the community can provide. You see that communal vision of Sabbath. Also, you should demand this of the marketplace and employers. Give rest to your workers. It is inhumane to work people seven days a week. Here's some other wisdom might be applicable for you. Cook on Saturday what you're going to eat on Sunday so that you can just wake, it up, wake up and heat it up. Amen? Our family has committed as, as much as possible not to shop on Sunday, if possible. You have to forge your own way upstream. I'm sorry, people of God. In the midst of a current of insanity, overproduction, overconsumption, greed, selfishness, we got to swim upstream. And at the end of the day, there will be plenty that you just have to let go of. There is plenty that you just have to put to rest because Sabbath is an act of faith in the God of Sabbath. Why do we strive to enter into the rest of Sabbath? Because the practice of Sabbath is what our hearts need. It's actually what our hearts long for at the depths. It's what you were created for. You were created for the Sabbath because you were created for the Lord of the Sabbath. That leads me to, to my close. Protect, profaning the Sabbath, protecting the Sabbath, and then praising the Lord of the Sabbath. Nehemiah has gone to such great lengths to confront the profaning and protect the Sabbath because he wants Israel to remember and keep the Sabbath day holy, set apart. Why? Because ultimately, as the prophets told Israel, to neglect the Sabbath of the Lord is to neglect the Lord of the Sabbath. To neglect the rest of God is to neglect the God of rest. To see that connection, you got to go back to the commandment itself. 
The seventh day is a Shabbat to or for the Lord your God. The Sabbath is not about just stopping for stopping's sake. The Sabbath is not the secular version of just a day off. The Sabbath is stopping to take a whole day and delight in the presence of the Lord. For the worship of the Creator, not merely to pursue our own myopic self-care or whatever pleasures us, but to catch up or to catch up on the unfinished side hustles or housework. But it is a day to experience the pleasure of a God who loves you. The Sabbath is like falling back into the waiting arms of God, saturated in a spirit of restful worship that your heart longs for at its depth. As Jesus taught in all of the Gospels, the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humans for the Sabbath. What did he mean? God doesn't give us the practice of Shabbat to further enslave us to a set of heavy expectations. God gives us Sabbath to free us into a light way of being that we were created for. God does not lie. God does not deceive you. And there is actually rest possible for your weary souls. And it's found in Sabbath. You can tell the whole story of the Bible through the idea of Sabbath. As Eugene Peterson points out poignantly, when you go back to the creation account in Genesis, what happens on day six before the Sabbath? As I already said, God makes humanity. So that means Humanity's first full day of life is what? The Sabbath. Eugene Peterson said, this is God writing justification by faith into the first page of the Bible. The, the, The first day of striving or working or living is a day of rest. That was God's creative intent for human life. The Sabbath doesn't pertain... Uh, only to God's work of creation either. It, it pertains to God's work of salvation. Before God gives the command to Sabbath, what does he do? With his own right hand and outstretched arm, he frees Israel from the slavery and tyranny of Egypt to give them a life of rest in the land. And when the darkness of oppression and slavery to sin, God finds us, he sent the Son of God who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why is Jesus yoke the easy yoke? Because in the heart of love, the love of Christ in his cross and empty tomb, in his sure promise of the second coming and his promise sending of the spirit, we find the truth that indeed all work has been done for us. All work has been done on our behalf outside of our labors, outside of our strivings. And the Sabbath is an invitation and a command to just stop and believe and accept that and bask in God's love. To say, as we sang, I am saved by grace. Love abounding, mercy found me. Right? Why don't we experience Jesus' yoke as easy? Because we're much too hurried to even notice it. We're much too distracted to even pay attention to Jesus. We're burnt out even to attend to Jesus. It reminds me of this story that Jesus told in the 10th uh, chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Maybe you remember it. Jesus comes into a house one night. Two sisters, who are probably poor, are hosting him. Their names are Mary and Martha. And get this scene. Jesus is in the living room. Martha's running around like crazy, which is how often I do when I host people. Running around, cooking food, making sure things are warm. Making sure the counter is perfectly clean. Making sure the sink is clean. Making sure the uh, the, the table setting is just beautiful, right? But Mary, her sister, what is she doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's just 
She's just listening to Jesus talk. She's just enjoying Jesus' presence. And Martha notices all of this, and she grows angry. And she comes and finds Jesus, and she says, Jesus, don't you see that I'm out here doing all this work? I'm on the grind just to host you, just to work for you, just to serve you. Can you tell my sister to get off her butt and come help me? And Jesus, in his compassion, do you remember what he did? He looked Martha in the eyes, and he said, Martha, Martha, mm, Martha. You are agitated and anxious about so many things, but there is only one thing necessary. Mary has chosen the better portion, and it will not be taken from her. What is the better portion? It is enjoying the presence of God. It is resting at the feet of Jesus. That is the better portion. And guess what, people of God? Your tomorrow is not promised. Your life of striving, I don't know where it will end. Most of our lives, we will live them, and then we will die, and people will forget about us. And yet, there is a better portion to cling on to. And it's symbolized and actualized in the Sabbath. And that portion is the portion of God's love, God's care, and his provision over your life. Sabbath is about dying to the lies and waking up to new truths. What are the lies that Sabbath dies to? Everything hangs on us. Everything hangs on me, so I can't let it go. I can't rest. False. Sabbath said everything is in the Lord's hands. You can put it on his hands. Sabbath says, I mean, the lie says, I don't have permission to rest. And God says, the creator of the universe has given you permission to rest. So reclaim your rest. (laughs) The lie that we believe catastrophizes and says, if I put away my work, If I put away my house chores, if I put away these things, they will end up in disaster. Sabbath says, no, God's got you. Your welfare is ultimately not up to you. Your life is in the palm of God's hand. God's written your life into his, your name into his book of life and no one can take it out. You don't have to live by that lie. Sabbath dies to the the lie of greed and accumulation and overproductivity and stripping things to the bone. And says that, no, God gives me a life of abundance and rest. Abundance and rest. So as we close, here's what I want to say about Shabbat. Find what has worked for you and stop it one day a week. And as I say this, I know it's going to be a process. I've been in process for years as it pertains to the Sabbath. Just like all the other commandments, right? You're in process on loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right? But God is with you in that process. And as we stop our life of anxious hurry, we will actually have withdrawals. It's going to be hard to rest, just like it's hard to practice savasana. But you have to intentionally enter into that practice. Many have wanted to create tight rules about what you should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath. But to quote another, Sabbath is more about what you are not doing than what you are doing. We are not working, we're not grinding, we're not hustling, toiling, we are resting, we are worshiping, we are delighting in the Lord. And from that book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he writes, When I Sabbath, I run each activity through this twin grid. Is this rest and is this worship? If the answer is no, or kind of, or but not really, or um, then I simply hold off. There are six other days for that. What's the rush? And notice how easy and free and spacious and non-legalistic this command is. Rest and worship are broad categories. 
There's plenty of room for interpretation based on your Myers-Briggs type or your Enneagram number or your stage of life. There is no formula or checklist or schedule. Sabbath will look different, say, for a 30-something introverted pastor raising a family in a busy city, for a 20-year-old single person living in a college dorm, for empty nesters living on a farm. That's great, he says. You do you. The important thing is to set aside a day for nothing but rest and worship. What is meant by worship? Yes, attending to the services of church. Praise God. You need this. But he also says, expand your list of spiritual disciplines to include eating a burrito on the patio, drinking a bottle of wine with your friends over a long, lazy dinner, or taking a walk with your best friend. Anything that indexes your heart towards grateful recognition of God's reality and goodness. You hear that, people? That's what we mean by Shabbat. It doesn't mean you're kneeling in the sanctuary all day praying. Though if you want to, go ahead. I believe the Lord will bless you in that. But Shabbat is experiencing life as we were meant to. Everything is a gift. Walter Brueggemann says, You can't live day seven differently without living day one through six differently. And here's the thing. If you want to experience a life of restfulness in Jesus, you have to engage the practice of Sabbath. And what I can promise you is this. If you will do this, it will be like a cascade effect in your life. You will find that your life will begin to be repatterned and restructured. And like a great waterfall that begins as a mighty stream, it will flow down into every single day of your life. And you will know a God of rest. So get in the groove of the rhythm of the universe, people of God. Find a rhythm of Shabbat and stick to it. Here's some wisdom. A habit, a habit will not begin to change your life until probably after some months of practicing it. I said months. Go ahead. Try it on for size. What do you have to lose? This is God's will for our life. A life of rest. A life of resting and ceasing from our work to delight in his work on our behalf and his love for us. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.